0: listener production our relationship with time tools and talent has changed forever i think that we can all agree learning fast adapting and creating value is the only way we will stay relevant and competitive and this is certainly not the time to be neutral on change it's not the time to be neutral around our role in transformation
1: i'm maggie hartley executive coach to senior leaders around the globe and this is fast track what is the future of work really about it seems everyone is asking this valid question but i'm not sure we really have an answer my next guest says the future of work is about talent not technology A challenging and interesting statement as the world threatens us with job losses and artificial intelligence. My next guest is Andrea Clark, and she encourages people to be future fit for the 2020s. And she does this by writing, speaking, and delivering digital programs. Andrea is a former television news reporter and Washington, D.C. correspondent who covered major news events for Al Jazeera English, the Pentagon Channel and Thomson Reuters, before working on humanitarian aid programs to rebuild Iraq, Georgia, Jordan and Afghanistan. On a return to Australia, she created her own training business before writing her first award-winning book, Future Fit, How to Stay Relevant and Competitive in the Future of Work, a book that won the Australian Business Book of the Year in 2019 and finalist in the London Business Book Awards in 2020. So let's chat about how to outrun the algorithm, stay secure in the future of work and be future fit. Welcome to Fast Track, Andrea. I've been so looking forward to talking to you. Thanks, Margie. So great to be here. In your book Andrea you take us through your experience about what good leadership looks like and you share a story about going through underwater helicopter crash training. I'm curious about the lesson from that for you, but how did you get to there?
0: Well, Maggie, interestingly, as a metropolitan news reporter covering stories. Part of our job was to jump in and out of the helicopter whenever we needed to. And so to be compliant in order to do that, we had to be certified. And what that meant was, I think every two years, we were shuttled out to an Olympic-sized pool where we went through a fairly intimidating training session, which always included the female reporters, always included being fully clothed, like including high heels. You could imagine that. And so we would often be in a group with Air Force pilots and also people who worked offshore who were flying to and from the oil rigs. And so we found ourselves, I certainly found myself uh, in a really mixed group, a mixed cohort. And there was one particular person who had an impact on me in, in in one of my sessions. And that was an Air Force pilot who Who pulled me out of a fake helicopter underwater when we were turned upside down, strapped in, and dunked to almost the bottom of the Olympic-sized pool. What's really interesting about that, looking back, is that there were divers who were assigned to sort of each person, and they were, their job was to pull you out of trouble if they saw you in trouble. And the, you know, I don't know what happened in that moment, but. I could not undo my seatbelt. So I, I found myself, I found my brain not connecting the dots. My brain could not tell my hand to release the buckle and it was a four-point buckle. So you were really locked in. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there underwater upside down and my brain wasn't connecting to my hand. So I was in trouble, but the diver didn't realise it at the time. So the Air Force pilot ended up pulling me out of there.
1: Oh, that's so traumatic. So <laughs> yeah. traumatic. It kind of was, yeah, at the time.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, what's the lesson in that story for you? I'd hate to sound all coachy mm. on you. No,
0: of course, yeah.
1: What's the lesson for you about that disconnect and what that mm. experience for you? Well, of course,
0: looking back retrospectively on that now, what I can see with great clarity is the fact that this Air Force pilot was, we are all instructed not to help one another because in in the real deal, you have to be able to fend for yourself. And the Air Force pilot got out of there really quickly, but he could see that the divers could not see I was in trouble. And so he came back down to get me. And I thought what was really interesting about that, looking back really closely at that context, was the ability to... Not follow the rules, not follow instruction, and understand that everyone's role in leadership is about recognizing you are in a completely different context to those people around you, and you're accountable and you're responsible for the people that you lead. And if you've got to save someone, if you've got to pull them out of a pull a drowning colleague out of, out of the pool, well, that's what you've got to do. So I think that. I think, you know, the broader lesson is that we're so overwhelmed with noise around leadership. And I know for anyone who spends any time on LinkedIn, you'll know that you'll know what I'm talking about. There's so much out there. And I think this wonderful advantage that we all have now is the ability to take whatever works for us from someone and use it in our own particular context. So I think that we all need to interpret leadership in a way that applies to our unique criteria, our unique moment. And that involves building it ourselves. I think many of us are looking around at professional services and at Harvard Business Review for the answer about the future of work. And the answer is something that we're responsible for. So the lesson for me in that microcosm of a moment was you've got to take responsibility. You've got to figure out what works for you and deploy that in the moment where it's necessary. And don't worry about what other people are doing, and don't worry about what the, the standard narrative ground rules are around leadership because they, that may not apply to you.
1: Mm, such a powerful story and interesting to hear your your take on the lesson out of that and this idea of, you know, making leadership your own and not just following a five-step plan. Mm. I love it, Andrea. I'm curious about the communication piece. You're an artful communicator. You've written, used to be a reporter. You're a communication specialist. How do you apply the role of communication in effective leadership?
0: I think the first point is to realise that the role of communication in leadership is real. It's often a core competency that's downplayed. And I think there's a, there's a very clear link between clear thinking, clear communicating and competency. So the connection between our ability to communicate successfully and our ability to lead successfully, you know, it depends wholly on our willingness to communicate frequently and actively with the people around us. So I, this is one of my things that irritates me the most about, <laughs> about, about communication in, you know, as it stands in executive education, programs because clear comms is critical to exercising authority as leaders but i feel like i don't see it getting the kind of attention that it should have because it's it's a fundamental piece of high impact leadership but rarely do we focus specific time on building that
1: Mm. as a capability. Okay, so that would be probably uh, one of the parts of an answer to my next question, because this is the bit that most fascinates me. In the book, you say that the future of work is about talent, not technology. Help me understand your thinking on that.
0: Well, interestingly, uh, when economic historians talk about the history of the workforce, the history of labour, they take a really clear position on the impact of technology and they all seem to land on the same point, that it's not the technology that drives change, it's simply how we decide to use it. So it's the way that we want to organise ourselves around transformation that drives the way that we live and work. And I think that we've seen that clearly in the last two years, that there has been transformation digital transformation that's moved ahead five years in 60 days that's how fast things moved last year and we all felt that we all felt the panic of that happening around us and I think what's important to realize is that we all have a role in this we all have a say in what we want our own future of work to look like because it's so highly contextual You know, I talk about the rise of the individual in the updated version of the book, and I think it's real. You know, we've got tens of thousands of highly skilled knowledge workers really leveraging their social capital, their reputation capital, to figure out how they want to design life around their high performance hours during the day. You know, that's real, and I think that we'll see a degree of employee activism start to to really gain momentum in the next couple of years and that's you know a whole sort of separate issue but I I think that we need to understand we all have a role in transformation and this is certainly not the time to be neutral on change it's not the time to be neutral around our role in transformation the future of work is about the future of you it's how you want to have impact and it's how you want to work in a way that works for you and the family and we're you know, we're seeing such seismic change in the way that we're delivering. And I don't think that's really going to change that much. I'm not sure that we're going back to the office. I wasn't sure that we were you know, even a year ago. I always felt that this degree of disruption was coming our way. But of course, I did not anticipate a pandemic would be the catalyst. I really felt the technology was going to be the disruptor to the way we work. But ultimately, we all have a say in the way we work. So That role that we have in transformation is real and it's not about disruption and it's not about technology. It's simply about the way we want to organise ourselves around it all.
1: One of my clients said to me, I used to be paid from nine to five to navigate the shifting goalposts. Now I'm really specific about what my KPIs and performance indicators are, and I'll do it in my own time. So this is really interesting what you're saying around organizing ourselves around the work as opposed to the, the other way around. So it seems that your background in remote news teams and leading those has quite a bit of similarity to the corporate environment. And I'm just curious how you turn good teams into great teams in your view. Well,
0: it's really interesting because I grew up in newsrooms. I grew up covering major news events for the Seven Network in Australia. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. for almost a decade and was covering North America, essentially, for Thomson Reuters and Al Jazeera English. And through all of that experience, what I did not realise until I started working with people in corporate is the striking similarities between high-performance remote teams, because that's what a news team is. You're a high-performing small team with a shared understanding, a shared mission, and a deadline. And in hindsight, you know, there's <laughs> You're extremely motivated in a news team to meet the deadline because otherwise everyone knows about it. If you missed a deadline, everyone knows. And so the accountability is there in ways which you really don't want it to be. But when I started writing Future Fit, what I discovered is that the, the way news teams run, there are four steps, four-step framework that we follow. And as it turns out, this is precisely what Atlassian users in its playbook for turning good teams into amazing teams, whether they're co-located or distributed. So, the first one is a shared understanding. So, the team has a clear and common understanding of the problem they're solving. They're confident that they have what they need and they trust one another. Step two is a full-time owner. There's one person in the team that's accountable for results. Step three is a balanced team. This is all about the team having the right people in the right place. And finally, the values and metrics. So, success is defined as a measurable goal that both the team and the stakeholders agree on. Now in a news crew, you know, I'll give you a running example of what I'm talking about. So I covered lots of stories where we had to scramble um, and deal with the chief of staff who was always on a Sydney time zone when we were on the the East coast of America. But say for example, you know, my phone would ring, the instruction would be, you know, for example, there's been a, a shooting at Blacksburg campus in Virginia, Get a crew and get down there as soon as you can. So I find the crew, the shared understanding is we know exactly the problem we're solving. We've got to make it there for the 6pm, a live shot into the 6pm news to update everyone on what's happening. The journalist always is the full-time owner in the story. That's just sort of standard practice. But certainly, you know, every journalist is open to what everyone else in the team has to say because... The value of that contribution is um, proves itself time and time again because there are things that the cameraman sees that you may not necessarily see because you're so distracted. The balance team is really important. Look, you may not like the people that you work with, but you need to respect them and In the case of a news team, you're often stuck with people for days or weeks at a time. Uh, I went to Iraq and was with a, a magnificent Reuters team for two whole weeks. And I remember very clearly it being Ramadan. And so I had to be very careful. I had to understand that here are two fantastic colleagues that were not eating, you know, between sunrise and sundown. So I had to be really sensitive about what we were doing and how we were doing it because it was 45 degrees every day. So you know, having a balanced team, you've got the right kind of people and rarely do you not get along with people on the road because everyone is so accommodating. You can't be in a news team and not be a highly accommodating human being. So that was always there. And in terms of the value and the metrics, you either made the deadline or you didn't. And if you miss the deadline, that was just the worst feeling in the world. So I remember when I was on campus in Virginia covering that um, horrific massacre. At the time, it was the worst shooting in US history. There were 34, 35 dead. You know, the job was to get there, to get what we need for the live shot, and then to hand over to the Channel 7 bureau chief who was arriving the next morning. You know, we made the deadline, but under the most severe amount of stress in really difficult circumstances, Um, because you're dealing with people who are in shock, you're interviewing people who are in medical shock that you don't necessarily appreciate at the time. So there's this dynamic and this experience that I had in the news business for you know 20 to 25 years and so to be able to translate sort of the characteristics and the traits and all of those nuanced soft skills that you need in order to solve problems all day because that's what you're doing as a reporter, you're spending all day solving problems and so to be able to translate that, you know, and use it as an example of this is what a high-performing team looks like in a corporate environment when you are remote, you know, that's, that's real, that's real life. Now nothing, you know, very few things compare with covering a tsunami or covering, you know, Baghdad or those very dangerous situations. But, but really the ground rules are the same. You all need to understand what the purpose is someone needs to be the lead. You need to have the right people in the right place and you need to have a goal that everyone understands and agrees on.
1: Fantastic comparisons, bringing that to life and sharing your lived experience then translatable into a corporate environment. It's really fantastic. Andrea, capability we need to upgrade. So, In the old careers, we didn't need to upgrade. We studied, we became excellent in something, and then we built our experience. But now it seems we're constantly calibrating and updating our capability. So what are some of the things that we mightn't have considered in terms of that upgrade?
0: Absolutely. So our relationship with time, tools and talent has changed forever. I think that we can all agree learning fast, adapting, and creating value is the only way we will stay relevant and competitive. It's my view that, you know, there are many soft skills that we need to be constantly recalibrating. I have personally chosen reputation capital, communication skills, adaptability, creativity, networking, modern leadership refining problem solving and active learning i've deliberately chosen those to to focus in on because there's so much evidence amassing that it's the the focus on the soft skills that you know that's what's required in in the labor market you know there's there was a report that came out of harvard quite recently on on the demand for these soft skills because these are the skills that we most need when we're in a crisis which we've all been in for the last 18 months these are the skills that will help all of us defy disruption as we move through the 2020s.
1: Yeah, and maybe skills too that can't be replicated by artificial intelligence in the current view, anyway. Andrea future fit for work. We really need to be focused on this. You've brought this topic right to the forefront, even before the pandemic. You've been talking about these core competencies and the capabilities we need to focus on. I really recommend anyone reads your book. It's fabulous and it's really stimulating And the stories are fabulous. I could talk to you for hours, but I just want to thank you so much for being on Fast Track today and sharing your stories and stimulating our thinking about being future fit for work. Thanks,
0: Margie. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.